Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us again on Facebook or our website, however you're tuning in with us again. Uh, listen, we're so glad you're here. And uh, this is just, you know, in the middle of this crazy COVID-19 situation, we got to do what we can to kind of gather and uh, stay together, be intentional in our conversations and in our connectedness. And so that's why we're continuing to do this and continuing to, to be the church that God has called us to be. You know, we've been in this series called Neighbor. And for the last couple of weeks, we've, we've focused on what it means to be a neighbor to um, the least of these, if you will, the poor, the marginalized. Uh, last week, Paul Stevens did a fabulous job talking about the broken. Some, some people in our society um, are seen as broken, uh, people who have sin issues in their past or people with disabilities or whatever the case may be. And of course, we know that, that there's no broken person that can't be used by God. Uh, he uses our, our past. He uses our story. He uses all aspects of our lives. And so that's what we talked about last week. Paul did a great job for us. Paul, thank you for leading us. Paul encouraged us and really challenged us to do three things. And I wanna, I'm going to kind of keep that challenge going. It's so good. And that is to identify somebody that you can reach out to. Who is that person in your neighborhood? Who's that person in your city group or in your family or the, at work? Just check in on some folks. The second thing is, is that, to contact them. So identify them, contact them, and then once you contact them, encourage them. So I think it's a great challenge, and I hope that we'll continue to do it as we continue to move further and deeper into this quarantine time. Well, this morning I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about what it means to love the lost, to actually have a sensitivity to people's spirituality, your neighbors, your family, uh, whoever the case may be. What does it mean to care for people enough, to love people enough that we're concerned about their eternity. So this morning, I, I want to talk about a couple of things. Now, we can't deny the fact that this is an important day for the church. It's an important day in the church calendar. This is Palm Sunday. This is King Jesus. This is, there's probably not another moment in Jesus' life on earth, and his ministry on earth, where he has more people surrounding him. He has more people celebrating him. This is the biggest moment uh, for such a thing. And so this is a big moment, and yet as we get into the text, you're going to see that his heart is not uh, fully engaged in just receiving worship. His heart is on his mission. And we know that his mission is to seek and to save the lost. That is what his heart is, and of course, that's what we see in our story this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and hopefully you do, turn over to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, we're going to have it on your screen for you. But this is Luke 19, verses 29 through 43. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you uh, why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and, and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if, if they're silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept 
over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Pray with me this morning, would you? Father God, thank you so much for your kindness. God, thank you for the privilege to be with our family, even though it's uh, separated and it's connected through technology, it's still not quite the same. We miss each other, Lord. We miss those connections, those hugs. We miss those face-to-face interactions. And yet, still you've provided a way for us to be together. And we're so thankful. God, help us to see that you truly are in control, that you are king. And God, that you are, you are sensitive to people who don't know you. And help us to understand what that means for our own lives, for our own neighbors. God, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lead us to all truth in this text and in this message. God, that I would decrease and you would increase, and that you would have your way, that your word would not return void, but Lord, we would submit our lives to it, and that we would recognize your visitation. We would recognize you as king and serve you in such a way, Lord. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. Use it, I pray, in all of our lives as we study your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want us to look at in this text very quickly, okay? The three main things are this. Number one, Jesus is in control. Some of you need to hear that right now. Some of you are struggling. You need to hear Jesus is in control. He was in control then. He's in control now. Second thing I want to talk about is that Jesus is king, and he is worthy to be worshiped. Now, the third thing I want us to look at this morning is that Jesus is heartbroken over the lost. That's, those are the three points that I want to make. Okay, num- number one, Jesus is in control. I think this story is incredible. Um, here we see this, this little moment of Jesus' ministry just before things get crazy. I want to give you a little context of what's taking place here. Jesus and his disciples are coming from a town called Jericho. Jericho sits about 17 miles uh, from Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples are making their ascent all the way, those whole 17 miles. And just before you crest the top of the Mount of Olives that overlooks the beautiful city of Jerusalem— are a couple of little towns set on this side of the crest of the mountain. So this town, Bethphage and Bethany, if you're in those towns, you can't see Jerusalem. You've got to go over the crest of the Mount of Olives before you see Jerusalem. Uh, so they're getting to this place. And as they enter and they get close to these towns, Jesus gives a directive uh, to his disciples. It's very specific, and it's amazing to take a peek in, into this moment. Um, look with me here. He says, go into the village in front of you. Uh, where on entering, you'll find a colt tied, not, not just a donkey, but a colt. He says, uh, on which no one has ever sat, untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you where you're in, uh, why you're untying it, just you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as they were, uh, had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, sure enough, say, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now that's, that's all we know of that part of the story, but it gives us this unbelievable glimpse into the brilliant, omniscient mind of Jesus. He is God, and he is in control. I want you to see the details of this story and the greater story that play here, and I want you to apply it to your life. Jesus sees all the details of your life. 
He sees that you might have lost your job. He sees that you're afraid. He sees that you're getting worn out with being at home. You've played all the games at home and you're done, right? He sees all the issues. He sees whether or not you've been infected with this virus and it's, it's, it's a scary time or not. He, he sees all the details and yet he is completely in control. What a beautiful picture of Jesus' omniscience. He understands, knows all things at all times. Can you imagine being one of the disciples with Jesus and just a regular day in ministry? And maybe he talks this way all the time. So the guys are getting kind of hungry and they're kind of looking at each other. It's about time to eat. And Jesus knows they're thinking that. And he goes, all right, go into this little town up here. There's going to be a guy by the, you know, this certain name, and he's going to have some bread and some goods and stuff and get it and bring it back here. It's going to cost this much. So take this much. Maybe Jesus operated this way all the time. We don't know. But in this moment, we get to see a little glimpse of the brilliant mind of God in Jesus. He knows all things. He sees all the details, and yet he is in control of all the details. So the disciples go into the town. They find it exactly the way he said. There's a donkey and a colt of the donkey, uh, a foal of a donkey. And so they start untying it. They kind of are lifting this, you know, if you know what I'm saying. They're kinda, it seems like they're kind of stealing this thing. But then, of course, it happens exactly the way he says. The owner comes out and says, what, why are you untying my, my, my donkey? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Well, <laughs> some of us kind of go, well, is that, is that all the end of the story? There's no more back and forth. There's no, but here's the deal. You got to understand, in this area of Bethphage and Bethany, Jesus was a rock star. Jesus was well known in this area. Just a few days before, he had raised a man from the dead, Lazarus, one of his dear friends. In fact, Jesus loved Bethany. This is where Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus lived. Uh, and evidently, they had enough money and a nice home that could accommodate Jesus and all 12 of his disciples. So even after this scene of Jesus going into Jerusalem uh, and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Later that night, they come back to Bethany to stay with their friends. They love Bethany, and they spend a lot of time there. So people all around Bethany and Bethphage, they would know who Jesus was. They would know he's Messiah. They would know he's the Lord. And so when, when the disciples say, the Lord has need of it, they would go, oh, absolutely. What an honor for him to use our cult. It's never been ridden as if this cult was created for this moment, and I believe that it was. Uh, Matthew tells us in Matthew 21 that uh, it's also not just a donkey, it's a colt. Very specific. And I want to tell you why. What's so cool about the fact that Jesus is in control is that he's not just in control of this donkey and of this scene that's playing out. He's in control of everything. Colossians 1 says he holds all things together. Hebrews says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So go back to eternity past and eternity future. Jesus is controlling it all. He's holding it all. And we begin to even see that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy even in this moment. Even in his omniscience, he's fulfilling a prophecy that was written 500 years before from Zechariah 9.9. Look what it says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was written 500 years before this moment. And if you're like me, you're kind of going, well, how, how is that possible? It's only possible if God is the author. It's only possible if it's been written for a purpose. 
to lead up to this moment that we're reading about today. This is what's so cool. We've talked about this before, the fact that Jesus, it says in Revelation, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Just go there with me for a moment in your mind. The Trinity, before the world is even created, before people have been created, and they come up with this plan to redeem a mankind that hasn't even been created yet. Jesus was the, was the lamb slain before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. And so this is all playing out step by step according to the power and the omniscience of a holy and amazing God. You see, Jesus was on a mission, and his mission was that he was headed to Jerusalem for Passover, along with a whole lot of other people. I'm going to tell you how many in just a minute. But as he gets to Jerusalem, his plan before the foundation of the world was to be on a cross on Friday. He was, his plan, his mission was to come to seek and save that which is lost, and he is going to do that at the climax of the story on the cross on Friday. So why Friday? Why is Friday significant? Well, at Passover, this is the time when they would offer lambs for sacrifice. And as those lambs were sacrificed, there would be an atonement for sin. But of course, we know that Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, would be uh, the lamb sacrificed once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice would be enough that there wouldn't have to be any more sacrifice. He would be enough. He would pay the sin for all mankind for all time. And so Jesus is going to give his life as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world on the exact day that lambs are supposed to be slain. This is all a part of God's control and sovereignty in our lives. Listen to this. After Jesus is murdered on a cross, the entire Jewish sacrificial system ends. Say, well, some people say, well, Jesus was just a good man. He just did some good things. No, no, no. Don't you see everything changed in the world of religion, of spiritual nature? Jesus became uh, the sacrifice once and for all. There, were no, there was no need for another sacrifice. It changed not only uh, creating Christian faith, it changed the Jewish faith. There's no more sacrificial system in the temple any longer. Jesus was on a mission to go to the cross and to be on the cross by Friday. Um, and this is a beautiful thing that we're seeing this is playing out to that exact moment because he's in control. The gospel writers, Matthew and John, uh, both confirmed that this moment with this donkey is fulfillment of a prophecy. This is Jesus now riding on a donkey, and he's beginning to come around uh, the top of the Mount of Olives and down uh, into the Kidron Valley. This would have been a significant moment for people who were Jewish, people who were Christians who were formerly Jew. They would have seen this moment as a prophetic and messianic moment uh, because of Zechariah's prophecy. This is the man they've seen who has done amazing things. I mean, he's raised the dead. He's healed people. He's done incredible things. And now he's, it's being played out before their eyes, right before their eyes. Jesus is Messiah. So the Jews would have said, here's our Messiah. He's come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We, we worship him as Messiah. But the Romans would have also seen something significant in Jesus riding on a donkey. Used to, when, when a king would have a victory in battle, he would ride back to his hometown on a donkey. So what's significant and ironic here is the Jews see him as Messiah, fulfilling a prophecy. The Romans see him strangely kind of going, does he think he's a king who's just had victory? Do you see the interest in that? Do you see the irony in that? The truth is, 
He's all those things. He is the king. He is about to have victory over sin, death, and the grave for all eternity. He is the final sacrifice. He's also the Messiah. The sad reality, though, is none of these people quite get it right. They give him the right title. They recognize in this moment a little bit of who he is, but he will not fulfill their expectations. He is not exactly who they think he is. So he's riding into town, and we see the second point I want to make, that Jesus is the king, and he's worthy of worship. Verse 35, look what it says. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks, their coats, or robes, uh, on the colt, they're kind of creating sort of a makeshift saddle for Jesus. They sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. We see this also happening in 2 Kings. This is an opportunity to say, uh, you're our Lord. We place our lives, ourselves beneath your feet. And because we can't lay down on the road and, and get trampled by a donkey uh, or let you walk on top of us, we're going to do something symbolic. We're going to take our cloaks, our coats, and we're going to throw them down on the road so that the animal can cross on these. It's symbolic of submission. You are our Lord, and we give you all that we are, and we lay these things before you. It's a beautiful sign of submission. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd did not like this. They, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here's Jesus. He's riding on a donkey as king to some, interestingly, and as Messiah in other ways. And his followers begin to throw their cloaks down as a sign of submission. And then they begin to sing loudly. They begin to sing. One gospel tells us that if people didn't have cloaks or, or coats or whatever, they went to the trees and they begin to cut off palm branches, which is why we get the name Palm Sunday. They would do this for dignitaries or royalty. They would get these palm branches. It was a sign of joy. They would wave these palm branches and even more submissive, they would lay their palm branches down before the king to walk on or for his animal to walk on. This is exactly what they're doing. This is an incredible moment. Can you go there? We can't quite picture it unless we get an understanding of how big this party was. Right? So Jesus had been in Bethany and Bethphage, and they come around the crest of the Mount of Olives. I've stood right there, and I've seen the beautiful city of Jerusalem shining uh, in, in the sunlight, sitting just above the Kidron Valley, just between the Kidron Valley and Mount Zion and David's area. And it's a beautiful sight. Jesus is cresting the mountain, he's beginning to come down the mountain, and his disciples begin to sing. They begin to lift up the name of Jesus. They begin to shout out things that are incredible. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And as he's leaving this area, beginning to come down the mountain, people are coming out of their homes. They're coming out of their shops. They're, they're wanting to see what is going on. And the crowd grows from a few to hundreds to thousands, and some theologians believe there were as many as 200,000 people surrounding Jesus as he made his way down the Mount of Olives into the great city of Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. Now, if you're standing at the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, 
200,000 people would be a big deal. Like that would, you, if you're standing in Jerusalem looking at the Mount of Olives, you would see there is a massive party coming down the hill and you would want to know what was going on, which would cause many people to leave Jerusalem to catch up, to hear what's being said and what's going on. And that's why theologians believe that many people might have come around him. In fact, theologians believe in Jerusalem at the time of Passover could have been as many uh, or over 2 million people. And if you're, if you're standing, again, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're thinking about two million people covering this little city of Jerusalem, it would be covered up. People would be staying and sleeping everywhere they could, every inn, every home. It's one of the reasons why Jesus stays in Bethany, including after he's gone into Jerusalem on triumphal entry, he's, he and his disciples are going to leave later and come back to Bethany and spend the night. It's only two miles away down uh, or up the mountain. So this is a significant moment. They, they know, by the way, that, that there were about 2 million people because uh, there's a Jewish historian that said around Passover, there were about 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered for Passover. Well, in Jewish law, it's usually uh, 10 lambs, uh, uh, one lamb per person, per 10 people, I'm sorry. One lamb per 10 people. So if you do the math and there are uh, 10 lambs, I'm sorry, 10 people, 10, <laughs> I'm, I've derailed. If, if there are, if there's one lamb for 10 people uh, and they, they sacrifice 260,000 lambs, that would equal over 2.6 million people in this tiny little city. Anyway, when I think about the numbers, it just kind of overwhelms my mind about that city, how big a moment this is. And of course, we know that after Jesus enters the, the city of Jerusalem, he gets in there, and he, that's when he starts turning over the tables. And you can imagine what a huge scene this would be based on how many people were in the city. So there's a lot of people there. Huge crowd, electric moment of adoration and worship. It says, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, for somebody to say to, he comes in the name of the Lord, it's like saying, he has favor from God. God is at peace. He, he comes with God's authority. So the fact that these people were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're sort of acknowledging that this is God allowing this moment, that he's, he's anointed this Messiah. It's a, it's a big statement for them to make such a thing. Another gospel writer uses the title, and we're familiar with it, especially on this day, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And what's interesting is, you know, we, we have songs about Hosanna, we sing about Hosanna. We, in the church, typically identify that with Palm Sunday and Easter season, and it's a good thing. But the word means literally, save now. The word means save now. And so what's interesting about that is the people who are calling Jesus uh, King, Messiah, blessed is he who comes, uh, then they say, Hosanna, save now. I want you to understand that's exactly what they wanted. <laughs> they weren't necessarily saying, we understand this spiritual mission, we want you to save our souls. No, they were saying, Hosanna, save now from the Romans, from this Roman occupation, from this depression of life that we have, these people over us. Hosanna, will you save us from these people? Save us now. So that gives us a little in indication of maybe where their worship was, where their hearts were. So they're doing all this because they see Jesus, at least in this moment, as Messiah, as the anointed king who's bringing his kingdom. 
I mean, they had seen him do incredible works. They'd seen him raise a man from the dead, Lazarus. And they believed he was coming to overthrow the Romans, not just to bring peace uh, to Jerusalem, but peace to hearts, peace to life. You know, when I look at this, uh, this message could easily be titled something about irony. The, the, the irony is so thick in this story, it's incredible. Uh, it, it blows my mind. Let me give you some examples. Jesus, uh, it says in the Word of God that, that uh, in creation, that earth is God's footstool. And yet Jesus, the creator of the world, rides on a little colt of a donkey down a mountain that he created. Just the irony is so thick. The crowds shout praises to King Jesus, but they think he's there to rule and reign. He's not. He's there to, to redeem and to rescue. It's quite a different mission. They don't understand his mission. What's interesting is they rightfully praise him with the title, the, the name Messiah, but he will not meet their expectations. He will not be what they think he is supposed to be. They worship his true identity for who he really is. And yet, sadly, in just a few days, their tone is going to change. The words are going to change. Their titles are going to change. And they're going to go from saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. In just a few days, they're going to be such a fickled people that at one moment they see Jesus potentially as Messiah ready to save them from the Romans. And yet the next, they're, they're pleading with the Romans, please crucify him. His blood be on us and upon our children. It's a, it's a crazy switch. It's a crazy moment, and it reminds me of us. We often do this. We often change our tune. I don't know if you've ever been to a church camp, but, man, there's something powerful about church camp when you're a kid. When you go to church camp, there's other kids there. You see kids worshiping, and you just, you're just drawn into worship a little bit more than you normally are. And the, the worship sounds better than it does maybe at your normal church. And the guy that's speaking is better than your normal pastor. And you just really engage, and you get hyped up. And, man, you get all gung-ho for Jesus. I'm going to go live for Jesus. I'm going to be the witness I need to be. I want to do all the things I want to do. And how many times did we leave camp, and a week later or two weeks later or a year later, we have nothing to do with Jesus? We, we find that our faith is a fickled faith. That's exactly what we're seeing here. People think Jesus is, is something in this moment, and then their true colors show up a few days later when they begin to shout, crucify him. You know, something else that we do is in times of fear, in times of pressing hardship, we also go to prayer. In fact, there was recently a Pew Research report uh, that was done and it's very interesting. It says that those of us who pray normally, we're praying more. And I, I believe that's the case. But it says people who don't normally pray are beginning to. Now, that's a wonderful study. I'm so excited about the reality of, of what that means uh, for our country and for families around our country. But my concern is that sometimes in a time of pressing fear and need, we fall on our knees before the Lord and then when this whole thing is over, we get up off our knees and we say, I don't care that you came in the name of the Lord. I say now crucify you. I don't care. So can I just encourage you that in this moment that God has allowed in our lives to let it have its full work on us. Let us surrender our lives to Jesus. Not just be fickled in our faith and say, yeah, I'm going to pray a little bit more. I'm going to watch churches a little bit more now, but when this whole thing is over, I'm going to go back to the lifestyle of sin and not caring about Jesus and his people. Let that not be the case for you. Don't have a fickled faith. Be a, be a person who surrenders now and the rest of your life to Christ. 
Well, some of these Pharisees are following along this parade down the Mount of Olives. Evidently, they're close enough to Jesus that they can hear Jesus and they can, they can speak with Jesus, which is interesting that they're following that closely to the donkey to see what's going on, just to try and trap him. That's what they've been up to and are still up to. And they say to Jesus, you need to quiet these people down. Why in the world are they worshiping you? That, that's a crime punishable of death, right? And so Jesus replies in verse 41, he says, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 40, he says, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones will cry out. If these people don't worship me, creation will. This is such an amazing moment because all through Jesus' ministry, we don't see him allowing people to worship him. All throughout the Gospels, he heals lepers and blind people and those who are crippled. And then they, they want to worship him because of what he's done. And he goes, wait, 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 don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Isn't that interesting? But not in this moment. In this moment, he allows worship. It's because this is his appointed time. The Bible says there's an appointed time for the Messiah, and this is it. And Jesus is allowing worship. You might remember we studied in the book of Acts uh, we got to chapter 14, and Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They come to this little town called Lystra. And while they're there, the people in uh, the synagogue and in the city, um, they're, they're used to worshiping Greek gods. And they think that maybe uh, Hermes and Zeus have come down in human form as Paul and Barnabas. And they want to start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And it is a crazy sight. Well, Paul and Barnabas, you might remember, they hate this. They know they're not God, and so they start ripping their clothes. And they say, men, stop, stop worshiping us. We're nothing but men just like you. We're just average, ordinary human beings. We don't belong in, in, in this place of worship. We, we don't deserve that worship. See, what's interesting about this scene with Jesus on the Mount of Olives is he doesn't stop the worship because he's worthy of it. He is the king above all kings, and he is receiving this worship. What's interesting though is he doesn't receive it very long. He tells this to the Pharisees and the next thing we see, not only has, has God been in control and that he is king worthy of our worship, but the next thing we see is that he is a compassionate savior. His heart is always on his mission for the lost. Again, I think it's a, a piece of irony in the sense that wouldn't this be the moment that Jesus had never been so celebrated in all of his life on earth. And yet in this moment, he doesn't even take it in for a few moments, he begins to weep. The irony of instead of receiving that worship, his heart is on people who don't know him, on the lost. His heart is broken over the lost. Look with me, verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things uh, that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus is coming down this, uh, this mountain, the Mount of Olives, olive trees, literally a whole garden of olives planted like we sort of plant now and sort of in rows. And so he's, he's making his way through the trees, through the olive trees and down this face of this mountain. And his eyes see the city of Jerusalem 
And instead of hearing all the worship around him of possibly 200,000 people, Jesus begins to weep. Now, in the original language, the word weep is not like a, a silent little tear. You remember the commercial? I don't know if it was a Pepsi or a Coke commercial back when I was a kid. Back in the 70s, there was a commercial of a, a Native American, and he, he just cries one silent tear on the commercial. That's not what this is saying. In the original language, it literally says, a loud mourning. This is Jesus weeping. This is him bawling his eyes out. This isn't like a solitary tear. This is him heaving. This is him broken over the city of Jerusalem and over those who are lost in the city of Jerusalem. He says this phrase. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. It's such an interesting word, and it's also another point of irony because, see, the, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. Salim means peace. And the irony is, Jerusalem, you're supposed to be the city of peace, and you don't even know peace. What is Jesus talking about here? What, what does he mean by peace? What, what's, it, what's he speaking of? We know that in, in Luke 13, Jesus has already sort of condemned Jerusalem in many ways. There's many places in the Gospels where Jesus sort of prophesies against the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But when he speaks about peace right here, what's he talking about? Look with me in Isaiah Chapter 9, verse 6. This is usually a Christmas passage, but let's remember what it says. It says, for, uh, to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, when Jesus is speaking and, and, and rebuking Jerusalem and saying, you did not know peace, he's saying, you did not know peace me. And because you did not know me, you had no peace. Look what he says in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus wants to give us peace so that we don't have trouble in our hearts, so that we're not afraid. He speaks that over us in this moment. He wants to give peace. He is peace. In fact, those of us that believe in Christ, honestly, we're the only ones who can receive that peace. If you don't know Jesus this morning and you're watching this, what a beautiful opportunity to surrender your life to the Savior. Say, God, change my heart. Forgive me of my sins. and Turn your life around and allow, allow the Lord to save you because only people who know Jesus can receive peace. Look at Philippians 4, 7. It says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Only if we're in Christ Jesus does he guard our hearts and our minds. Only if we're in Christ Jesus does he help peace surpass all that we understand. And here Jesus is weeping and heartbroken over the lack of peace in Jerusalem, supposedly the city of peace, because they don't know him. Jesus is peace. In fact, he's the prince of peace. So Jesus is heartbroken. He's weeping. And then he prophesies again. He's done it several times in the Gospels. He prophesies again about the destruction of Jerusalem. Of course, we know historically some 35, 37 years later, 
it's going to happen in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem happens. But Jesus says this in verse 43 as we get ready to close. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Of course, he's speaking of his visitation. As Messiah, he has visited earth. He has come to save, and Jerusalem has denied that he is Messiah. Jerusalem has rejected that he is the king sent by God to save the world. They have rejected him. And because of that, because of that rejection, because of that denial, destruction. Jesus says, destruction's coming upon Jerusalem because you denied me. It's going to happen. You didn't recognize me as Messiah, and he weeps. For those who don't know him, for those who don't have peace, and he weeps over the destruction over this city. Listen, here's a question I have for us this morning. Do we weep for those that we know don't have peace? Are, are our hearts moved uh, to that kind of emotion for people that we're concerned because we know that their lack of trusting Christ, their lack of knowing his peace is ultimately, ultimately going to lead to their destruction? And that's a serious thought and one that we need to take uh, very seriously this morning as we think about what it means to love the lost. You see, in this morning as I close, listen, in this text we see Jesus is in control. He's always been in control. He'll always be in control. He's in control in this moment. He's come to rescue us. We, We don't have to be afraid in this season. I know it's easy to go there. I found myself kind of vacillating between fear and strength and, and worry and confidence. And, and that may be where you are. And, and when we find ourselves in those fearful moments, we need to go, say, Lord, give us your peace. Guard our hearts and our minds against this worry, against this fear, and help us to know you are in control. You said you'll never leave us or forsake us. We also need to realize that Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's not just king uh, for our needs and our wants and what we hope happens in our lives. Lord, as long as we get to do what I want to do in my life, I'll call you king. Hey, listen, that is not claiming Jesus as king. That's, that's him doing what you want him to do. That's, that's him serving you. No, he is the king. We're here to serve him. And so regardless of what's going on, regardless good, bad, the Lord gives and takes away, he is the king. And we surrender to him as king. That's who he was, that's who he is, and yet we see these people so fickled. In one moment, they worship him as king, and the next they shout, crucify him. They shout, crucify him, when really believers in Christ should be picking up their own cross. See, that's what it means to be a Christ follower. We pick up our own cross, we deny ourselves, we put ourselves second. That's what it means to love the Lord with all we are, and then love our neighbor as ourselves, to be selfless in that way. See, don't let the hysteria of this moment, the craziness of this moment, the fact that we have to do a a live stream like this just to connect, or the fact that we have to be in our homes and the stores are closed down, this is an unprecedented moment for our country. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. But don't let the craziness of this moment fool you into thinking you know Jesus just because you're praying a little bit more. In other words, don't let this time end. In a couple of months, you, you go back to your life of sin. You go back to your life of not caring about God's people or God's things or what God wants of your life. Let this be a moment where we surrender to the king. 
so that we may truly have peace. Don't you want peace? Don't you really want peace in the middle of this moment? My hope and my prayer is that if nothing else, the craziness of what we're experiencing is allowing us to realize that we need a Savior. Friends, you need peace. You need Jesus. And it's my hope and prayer that you will surrender to him. Even as I'm speaking now, finishing up this service, do you truly know him as king? Or is that some convenient title you give him in the middle of a crazy moment? Lastly, before we go, I just want to say this. Do you notice that Jesus sees the greatest need of people? The most attended, loud, crazy spectacle of a moment Jesus had experienced in his lifetime, and his heart is on the greatest need of people. Listen, can we learn from that right now? In the moment where we have need, in the moment where we're concerned, in the moment where we're worried about different things, let's take our eyes and our minds and our thoughts off of ourselves and place them on people who have a great need. Friends, do we see that that need, the greatest need in their lives, is Jesus. It's peace. It's knowing him. Do we see that? Does it break our hearts? Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He had such compassion that he audibly sobbed loudly. He bawled his eyes out because these people didn't know the peace of God. Do we do that? When's the last time you wept over a lost neighbor? When's the last time you wet your pillow as you're, play, you're praying at night over someone that you love, a loved one, and, and your tears wet your pillow because you're so concerned? When's the last time your heart was really, truly broken for someone that you know who doesn't have peace and doesn't have Jesus? You know, we've, we've been studying for, this is the ninth week in our neighbor series. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, hopefully it means if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we've been serving them, We've been kind. We've done everything we can to to help and be available, to pray, to communicate. And hopefully that service has given us some relational equity where at some point we can then have a conversation about the Lord and say, listen, hey, I've just been praying for you and my hope is that you would know Jesus. And especially in this time, friends, what an unprecedented opportunity we have in this time when people are searching praying more, seeking truth, we can give it to him. His name is Jesus, and he is the prince of peace. Can I just throw this in as as we're about to finish? Jesus warned these people in Jerusalem. He warned this this city. He said, destruction's coming upon you, you and your children. I I I read that. I just kind of shuddered. It scared me. Because the reality is, friends, if you don't know Christ, I want you to know that you and your children, you're leading them in a way of destruction. You're leading them in a path of worldliness. You're leading them in a path that will lead them to death. But Jesus said, I've come to bring you life and life more abundantly. This is a serious matter. And we need to trust Christ. We need to acknowledge the fact that he is king that he has made an appearance on this world, that he did lay his life down as a sacrifice for us. And that sacrifice met every demand of a holy God so that we could be forgiven and accepted and there would have to not be another sacrifice ever given. It was given once and for all by Jesus. But if we don't follow him and we don't know him, our lives are being led to destruction now 
and in eternity in a place called hell. Would you make the choice now to surrender your life? Would you make the choice now to have true peace in the Prince of Peace? Listen, as we close, let's pray for the salvation of our neighbors. Let's, let's give our hearts to the people that we know who don't know Christ. Let's do everything we can to bring their names before the Lord. If there's one thing we need right now, it is peace. If there's one thing that's going on in our hearts and in our families and our lives and our work, we need peace. And I just want to pray for us as we close. Listen, I pray that you have that peace. I pray that you have it in knowing Christ, that because you're in Christ, he's guarding your heart and minds. He's giving you peace instead of trouble. He's giving you peace instead of fear. And if you don't know Christ, what a beautiful time today to say, Lord, you are the king. Not just for this moment in my life, but for all eternity. Give me life. I surrender to you. I repent. Change me and save me by your mercy and your grace. That's my prayer for us today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for how you love us. Thank you for your word. God, how powerful it is to meet us right where we are. And Lord, we know that uh, we see this story. We're just reminded, God, that you have been, you are, and you will be in control for all of our lives. You know what's going on. You know every tiny detail. You see it, you provided for it, and you meet every need because you're in control. God, we also understand, even in this story, we recognize and, and we, we raise our hands in submission. We lay our lives down before your feet as well, Lord, in submission and say, you are king, but not king for what I want, king for whatever you want. Lord, we surrender our lives to your will. Whether you give our lives, uh, give us life, or whether you take it, whether you help us through this situation, whether, whether we struggle. Lord, whatever it may be, whether we even go through suffering, you will never leave us or forsake us. You are with us. And God, we're reminded that you are concerned about lost people, and if you're concerned about them, Lord, and their peace and lack of peace, then we need to be. Move our hearts, Lord, to be a people of compassion, praying for those who don't know you, those who are especially struggling now with fear. May your peace cover them as they trust you, as they come to know you. That is our prayer today. Help us to love the lost. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, listen, as uh, we close, are you going to sing a song or no? Okay. Hey, listen, as we close, I just want to encourage you. Um, you're not alone. God is with you, and he's all you need. He's all you need. But he's also given us each other. So connect in those city groups, pray together, be reminded. Uh, that's, what Hebrew, that's what Hebrews 10 tells us to do. It says to, to love one another, stir one another up to love and good works as we see the day approaching. And man, I, we see the day approaching in this junk, don't we? And so let's connect to one another. Let's surrender our lives to the Lord and to each other and allow him to do something in us in this moment. We're praying for you. Now, I don't just say that. Uh, you're going to get a phone call from our elders. If you're a partner of South City, we're going to be calling you, checking in with you, making sure you're okay. Every partner, every person. And we're going to check on you because we love you and we are praying for you by name. Uh, if we can pray for you, if you're watching this and we can help you in some way, please let us know how we can help. God bless you. 
pray that this is a, a beautiful Sunday for you, and I'm excited about next Sunday. We've got some very special surprises for you next Sunday uh, on Easter. It's going to be a beautiful day of worship as we talk about what it means uh, to love like Jesus. This whole series has been leading up to how do we love not just our neighbors as ourselves, but how do we love like Jesus? That's the goal. And so God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday. We miss you. We'll see you next Sunday on Easter. Take care.